Welcome to the Technicast, a podcasting community open to all arts and humanities researchers. Every month, we invite a different researcher to introduce their own project. In this episode, Sylvia Solakidi discusses tactility in the context of love and grief. The Pulse of Love and Grief I hate airplanes. Two and a half days by train versus a four-hour flight. Train for me, please. A journey from London to Athens lasts that long. I live in London. I come from Athens. I always travel alone. A treat. I can stop in Paris, for example. The Eurostar train journey from London lasts no longer than two hours and fifteen minutes. Long enough for a read. It is October 2018 and I read Susan Sontag's 1999 novel In America. In a few hours I will visit her grave. Again, in Cimetière de Montparnasse, in Paris. I see the French landscape as the train comes out of the Channel Tunnel. The train coach experience being in motion while sitting still. The two experiences intertwine in a crossing over relation. I hold the book. I touch the pages. My pencil. My highlighter. I see Marina, the gracious actress of Polish theatre, who goes to the doctor, her old friend, who is secretly and desperately in love with her. Opening his eyes, he grinned mischievously. I like taking your pulse, I've noticed, so I can reassure you. He placed her hand back in her lap. How healthy you are. Medicine. Well, more like eroticism. Don't you think so? The doctor listens to his love. I hear Marina's pulse as the doctor takes it. I hear people chatting around me. The train coach experience, being alone, in my sounds, among the sounds of others. The two experiences intertwine in a crossing over relation. Taking the pulse is a bizarre gesture. You hear someone's heart by placing your finger where in fact the heart is not, on their wrist. And you can't. Your eyes are fixed to your wristwatch. You hear through touch. Touch and hearing intertwine in a crossing over relation. This is a kind of synesthesia, an experience of a sense, hearing, through the stimulation of another sense, touch. And as French phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty states in his 1945 book Phenomenology of Perception, it is not the exception, but the rule 
of every living experience, since no experience reduces to discrete properties, like the train coach experience, where my private world of sitting and reading crosses over the public world of the train coach, like the taking of the pulse, where the medical gesture crosses over love. The crossing over that makes an intersensory experience possible corresponds to a decusation in the form of the Greek letter he, which is the same as the Latin letter x. It corresponds to a hias, to a chiasm, as Merleau-Ponty calls it in his unfinished book, The Visible and the Invisible. He died unexpectedly in 1961. The chiasm is what happens when my two hands clasp each other, or one of my hands clasps your hand. Both hands are touching and are being touched, and they establish a connection between them, between us. Merleau-Ponty grounds intersubjectivity on this intercorporeal relationship, which is taken by the Belgian philosopher Le Serigaret towards the way of love. This is the title of her 2002 book, Love Begins with a Touch Between the Two Lips of a Person that Opens Up When Two People Kiss Each Other, she says. The day after the Eurostar journey, a painting in the Picasso Museum in Paris reminded me of the Paul scene. It is Pablo Picasso's Science and Charity. He was 16 when he painted it in 1897. A young woman is in bed, very ill. On the right, a nun with a baby in her arms offers her a cup to drink from. Charity. On the left, the doctor sits on a chair. He takes her pulse. He does not look at her. He is immersed in his watch. He counts. Science. The module for the doctor, though, is the painter's father, and the inspiration for the painting comes from the death of the painter's sister two years earlier. Medicine. Well, more like father's love. Don't you think so? The father's hand wrings the ill girl's wrist. Her hand is dead. That color, ochre brown, so different from his healthy flesh. I remember it very well. In 2019, I saw the painting again in the Picasso Museum in Barcelona, where is its permanent home. And when I looked at it for the second time, I thought, the pulse announces the girl's death. The father listens to his daughter's imminent death. When death is preceded by a sickbed, 
grief begins while the person is still alive. I read this during another Eurostar train journey a couple of months earlier from Brussels to London. I was in Antwerp and I had just bought The Logbook of a Merciless Year by the Dutch novelist and philosopher Connie Palmer. It is the diary-like record of her grief in the year after the death of her beloved man, the Dutch salesman Hans von Merlo in 2010. When he was in the hospital, she used to share his sickbed during the night as if they were still sleeping in their own bed in their home. She put her head on his chest, her hands on his body, and felt his heart and his breath. The touch of love and the sounds of the body of the beloved man that used to put her to sleep triggered her agony, a struggle to breathe. Would doctors hear by using a stethoscope she could feel by touching his chest? And on a certain day, she had her head on his chest until the sound of the heartbeat faded away. And the following day, he was in their home again, and deep into the night, when no one could see her, she put her head on his forever silent chest. The chiasm of love brought this woman and this man together, but when his heart stopped and she touched his chest without being able to feel the beloved sound, love and grief intertwined in a crossing over relation. Grief is love without salvation, Palmen writes. The body organs are stupid, she writes. They do not know the difference between longing for a living and a dead man. His silence, the absence of his heartbeat that used to calm her down, made her body ill. She describes how the sounds made by her own organs changed, the sounds of ill organs, like the ones made by empty bowels, like the sound of heart arrhythmia. The stupid body was still waiting to be touched and feel the beloved heartbeat that would heal its ill sounds. His silence also affected her body of work. In her 1995 novel The Friendship, Palman states that Writing is giving your mind another body. When the pain of grief overwhelmed her existence, her body did not allow her to switch into another body and write a novel. She wrote the book of grief instead, the logbook, which is unique in her oeuvre, a shocking book. A widow talks about the longing for her man's body. She dares to state in public what widows do not dare to share even with her daughters. I am the daughter of a widow who loved her man dearly, like Palman, 
loved her own man. Corporeal longing and shame for being still alive. This is the way Palman describes grief. Shame keeps grief hidden from the world. She discusses the precious few books of literature that talk about grief. Grief was not always private, though. It used to be a process for the family and the community. Palman shows that grief is corporeal, and when the privacy of the grieving body intertwines in a crossing of her relation with the publication of her logbook, she chooses to keep in this book her own suffering body. Corporeal pain of grief opens up through writing as a corporeal gesture. The ritual of grief. In the public space of the train coach, I touch the book that I read. I touch the writer's body. I feel her pulse. Can you feel my heartbeat? It goes boom, boom, boom. It is a line from Nick Cave's 2013 song, Hicks Bosom Blues. He lost his teenage son in 2015. His family suffered in private, and then they decided to open up, to grieve without hiding. The grieving body of the father appeared on stage in early 2017. The body of the performer was not the one that we were familiar with. On the 30th of September 2017, he performed with his group The Bad Seeds on the stage of the O2 Arena in London. No, he's not on the stage. His stage is a narrow strip that he reaches by jumping back and forth over the gap between the stage and the spectators. He leans over and invites them through gestures and the sound of boom to fill his heart by touching his chest with their hands while he grasps the hand of one spectator so that he does not fall. He sings. It is a rock concert, but his hands, his body and his heart beat. They beat the rhythm. The ritual of grief. He chooses to sing with his suffering body. Corporeal pain of grief opens up through singing as a corporeal gesture. When Cave sings with my voice I'm calling you, he invites spectators to touch his hand. When he demands, look at me now, he grasps their hands while the body of the singer sings of his need for connection, spectators of the first rows touch and hold him. I'm not sitting on the first row. In fact, my seat is in the upper tier, very close to the back row, and the London O2 Arena has a capacity of 20,000 spectators. How do I touch him? It is possible by seeing 
the spectators of the first rows who do it. Their touch and my saying intertwine in a crossing over relation thanks to my mirror neurons. This were discovered in the 1990s by the Italian neurophysiologist Giacomo Rizzolati, who demonstrated that they are activated not only when we act, but also when we look at an action. She conducted experiments showing that empathy is possible because when we see a gesture being performed, it is as if we were doing it ourselves. The effect of Cave's hand clasp with one person is amplified through seeing and hearing and the intensity of their connection explodes in the huge concert venue. The O2 arena is smoking, bowling, melting, burning. These are the verbs from his song The Mercy Seat that are embroidered on a piece of cloth attached to his concert piano. The whole live concert becomes a mercy seat. Grief is merciless, as on the title of Parliament's logbook of a merciless year. Cave would fall if the spectators refused to hold him or if they hurt him with their clasp. It never happened. Touch, however, can be violent. Courage is needed to take the risk and open up the pain of one's own grieving body upon a ritual of grief with others. Heart is really needed, since in the etymology of courage lies core, that means heart. Hearts are vulnerable, but they have chosen to enact grief with strangers, and strangers read them, listen to them, watch them, touch them. It can only happen with strangers, though. Grief as a community event was a wise ritual because strangers bear difference, otherness. This difference is the condition for love, according to Lucy Guy. She also says that acting according to touch is a revival of Eros. Love that intertwines in a crossing over relation with grief becomes Eros again when it opens up in public thanks to relationships with the otherness of strangers. According to McLeopontee, art becomes Eros again when the ontological longing to intertwine is taken up by artists towards artistic expression. In place of a hermeneutics, we need an erotics of art. This is the final line in Sontag's 1964 essay Against Interpretation. Palman Cave enact the erotics of art so that they may save grief, which is love without salvation, according to Palman, so that they may save grief through arrows. I hate aeroplanes. Two and a half days by train versus a four-hour flight. 
flight for me this time. To Athens. A family emergency. No time for train trades this time. I always travel alone. I do not hate aeroplanes. I'm scared of heights. I do not dare to look out of the window. I try not to listen to what others say around me. I am scared. I'm concentrated on the book. I hold it. I hold the writer's hand. I read The Pain of Tearing Away. Ten days later, before I take the airplane back to London, I visit my dad's grave. Mama will be fine, I tell him. She's recovering fast. No one is immune to grief. All bodies that have lost a beloved person long for rituals of grief, like Connie Palman's lockbook, like Nick Cave's rock concert, rituals where my own heartbeat can be joined with those of strangers. A fast heartbeat may be an indicator of fever. As a child, I could not stand the feeling of the cold thermometer in my armpit when I was ill. Dad used to take my pulse. He smiled while listening to the sound of the girl's heart. He made his calculations and he announced the temperature. He never missed more than 0.2 degrees. Thank you very much, Sylvia. You're welcome. I really enjoyed listening to your podcast. Um, I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is when you say grief is love without salvation. And then this idea of the body's organs being stupid because they can't tell the difference between the dead person and the living person, which I love. So can you say a bit more about that? Well, actually, those are quotes from Connie Palmer's book, uh, the logbook of a merciless year. As I say in the podcast, this is a very shocking book and a, a unique book because there's not much written about uh, grief. There's a lot written about death. Let's uh, say that the podcast is based on three research papers of mine that have already been published. Uh, reviewers ask me this. There's so much about grief. There's, there's self-help books. Yeah, but not literature. Because literature is not self-help. Literature is doing things with others. So this writer, who is uh, a very important writer in uh, uh, in the Netherlands, she had two big loves. She lost both of them. And she wrote one book after each loss. The first was the book of love and the second is the book of grief. She began writing 46 days after his death. She was in complete mess. Her body had 
collapsed completely. She she couldn't take care of herself. She, she was in this terrible condition, but she knew that this will go away, unfortunately from experience, because she had it the first time and she didn't want it to go away completely. Of course, she wanted it because she cannot suffer for life like that. It's very corporeal kind of suffering. But we all lose. This is law in this world. We know, I think, that um, when there is big love, any kind of love, when there's big love, there's big grief. And so she observed herself and she realized that the mechanism is the same. That's why the big love for this man became all this grief. And the fact that the body of of this man was so important, was so important sexually, but was important in other ways as well. She was asking in an interview, okay, do you only, only miss his body? And she explained the obvious, everything is packed in this body. You also relate it to Picasso's science yeah. and charity. Yeah. I love I love that picture. It's so, it's so amazing. Yes. And then I, I looked at it again after hearing your podcast mm-hmm. and it evokes so many kind of feelings and emotions. You've got the child touching the nurse, the nurse holding the teacup, the sick woman, the mother touching herself with one hand, and then you've got the doctor taking her pulse, which... From your podcast, I sort of thought, oh, that can also be an erotic touch at the same time. So I just wanted to talk about the relationship to that painting and some of your ideas. Well, um, for my research, I used to go to Paris quite often because it's easy from London and watch uh, shows or visit exhibitions because I have a background in art history and I always visit exhibitions. And uh, it was a great opportunity that this painting actually traveled because it does not travel from Barcelona. And it was a big thing that uh, temporary exhibition, this painting was I mean, 16 year old man made this. It's such an incredible structure there and composition, but it's not just this. Okay, he, he was a genius in drawing and you can see this. But um, I think that there are the details there that tell another story. Uh, I'm quite sensitive in the difference of the color between the dead hand and the living hand. I always focus on what happens with hands. It's the detail from that painting that I focused upon. Actually, my own dad used to take my pulse. Of course, I was not dying and uh, he was not a doctor. He was a barber, by the way, but he knew things like that. And uh, it was always so tender when I was a child, yes. So uh, thanks for my own experience and my viewing experiences. And then uh, uh, the novel by Susan Sontag. Okay, I- I'm crazy about Susan Sontag. I think it's true. <laughs> I-, I really admire this kind of writing. I love this scene because it's uh, eroticism that is underground. <laughs> that is never expressed. And this is what she wants to say, that those guys, the doctor and uh, the actress, uh, knew each other since years and years and years, decades. But it was always like that. It went through. And then from this, I went to the difficult part, which is grief and uh, how I, I saw that in others, in a cave, which was a very important experience. Actually, I watched it just eight days before the death of my best friend. 
and I'm a big Nick Cave fan. And uh, so all those things went together. I had these experiences and some difficulty, let's say, to deal with love and grief myself. And when I read Connie Palmer's book, a lot of things became clearer. Uh, actually, all those four things, Sondag's yeah. book and uh, Picasso's painting and this book and uh, the music and performing of Nick Cave. I wanted to ask you about your performance, actually. You performed it beautifully, the pauses and the musicality of your voice. And also, when we were working together, you were very particular about exactly how you wanted the music. And I hope I I got it right in the end. Yes, yes, um, really good. So I just wanted to ask you about your engagement with, with actually presenting your work. Well, I have many friends who work in theatre, and this is good. Because on the one hand, they told me, oh, my God, this of yours, it's terrible. I know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for this. I haven't uh, fixed that yet. And on the other hand, whenever I had to go to conferences, both um, medical conferences and then theater and performance, I was actually rehearsing. And they told me some tricks. Of course, I'm not a performer, but it has to do with uh, building rapport with the audience, of course. And in conferences, this is so important. I never read out from a manuscript, not because I'm very good at uh, remembering everything by heart. I always forget something, but I think it's better to do this than not having rapport with audience. When you listen to something, it's an entirely different way of uh, understanding and capturing things. Uh, well, I'm uh, I'm very bad in music as well, but I studied with a great master in Greece, and uh, I, let's say I became a much better listener. I was going to say, it so, sounds like you have very good ears. I, yeah. I, I can just say, uh, yeah, yes, my ears are not bad, and uh, those are thanks to my father, who was um, listening to classical music all the time, and he taught me how to listen to this. So I try to to do something that um, could be grasped by people who listen to it. Um, so one final question. Yeah. Can you uh, summarize Merleau-Ponty's philosophy of tactility? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it is his ontology. But we're not everything is imposed on us because... We can do things, we can move, but we're always inside. So there are conditions. And uh, this means that we're related to each other because we're in the world. We are all part of this flesh of the world. This means that uh, individuality, autonomy, always go through dependence. This is very important because he doesn't say that we are not free, that we're not independent. But we cannot be free and independent unless we are dependent. How was it for you making the podcast? I am not experienced as it shows. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to work on this. It was really nice and I felt very, very safe. Yeah, I, I recorded the, I was... it over 30 <laughs> times during the night because... Um, uh, I cannot tell uh, the neighbors, stop, 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 yeah, stop. Yeah, recording yeah. now. Yeah. And so it was during the night after two o'clock, after three o'clock. 
really worked. Thank you so much, Sylvia. You're welcome. I thank um, you, Joe. Thank you for listening to the Technicast, and thanks also to Techne for their support. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share, and rate us. If you'd like to submit your own podcast, please get in touch with us at technicaster at gmail.com. You can find out more about our upcoming themes on our website or in Techne's newsletter. We look forward to hearing from you. Join us again next time to discover another researcher's fascinating work.